It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. One, no labels, non-committed. How many voters are going to end up pulling the lever for none of the above? A conversation with Kennedy. Two, your relationships are more important than your tech skills, your soft skills, more important than your hard skills in an economy commoditized by college and AI. Three, the top eight quarterbacks in college football since the year 2000. It's the Will Kane Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel, the Fox News Facebook page, and always on demand, audio version, Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast, on video on Facebook, and Will Kane Show on YouTube. Coming up in just moments, we'll have a fun conversation about Michigan, about MTV with Fox's Kennedy. Right before we went on air, I was talking to one of my college buddies about skinny legs. The producer's back in New York, sitting in the control room, texted in, skinny legs are a problem. As you guys know, I'm, as part of my New Year's resolutions, doing this rowing challenge. It's a nine-week training regiment that culminates here in mid-March with a 5K row, not on the water, on a rowing machine. And as it works, our program is that we row three times a week. Everybody shares their results on a WhatsApp chain. And I'm just in a valley. I'm, I'm not doing well. And it's specifically on these long rows. And I know you don't care. And yet, here we are. My hands are torn to shreds. I don't know if you can see streaming on YouTube, but my hands are covered in blood blisters and calluses, and I refuse to wear gloves because, hey, you know, I'd rather have the calluses than have a soft ego. But, you know, I'm weighing in at a buck 80, and I've never been one known for a strong leg drive. I can sprint. And I do well in the thousands and 750s and 500s in our workout sprint day. But on Monday, it was three 20-minute rows separated by a five-minute break. So that's an hour of rowing. And that's going to add up to somewhere between 13,000 and 15,000 meters. And I just dive, man. I dive. I start out fine, and then I'm gone. And I don't know if it's mid-back, lower back, or these skinny bird legs, but something is a problem here. I just don't have the the stamina, and I'm blaming the lower half. And I'm going to tell you that uh, it makes me concerned for my 5K skinny legs. I'll tell you what else should concern politicians is people willing to pull the lever for none of the above. We see it in the most recent primary results in Michigan, and we hear it when we have conversations like yesterday with no labels. So let's get to story number one. She is Kennedy, 
You can find her at Fox News Podcast. You can find her on the Fox News Channel. You can find her on Fox Business. And today you can find her right here on the Will Kane Show. I'm glad to have you back. What's up, Kennedy? Okay, there's so many things I want to talk about. I'm excited to talk about Michigan. But when you started talking about skinny legs, I was triggered because I've never had skinny legs. I've always had like, you know, <laughs> tree trunk legs, um, and which is great for childbirthing and like you sprinting. Um, but skinny legs are a little better to have for endurance. If you look at marathon runners, they don't have thick legs. Sprinters have thick legs. So um, I don't I don't think it's it's the leg worry that you need to focus on. Well, okay. my friend said to me, he goes, are you like are you winded? Are you huffing and puffing on these on these long on these long rows? I'm like, no, I don't feel like my cardio system has given out. But and you're right. I mean, look at any Kenyan runner and you'll see a guy that has got long, lean muscles as opposed to a sprinter like, say, Ben Johnson. And I know you do triathlons, Kennedy, but you know, rowing is a little bit like doing a deadlift at light weight over and over and over. It's kind of the same form as a deadlift. And so you're you're using your hamstrings, you're using your glutes, and you're using your back. And I just wonder somewhere in that posterior chain, like over the course of an hour, I feel sometimes, Kennedy, and I think about my diet and I think about this stupid work schedule that gives me no circadian rhythm when I sleep and I look at Zen, and I look at all the different things that are potentially taxing my energy system, and something's failing. That's all I know. Something is failing over the long workout. So it's interesting because my triathlon coach um, the last couple years has included a lot more strength, and that has helped my endurance, but we all develop our quads way more than our hamstrings. And, you know, for endurance athletes, it can become problematic because that's when you have real wear and tear. And so one of the things when I tore a knee a few years ago, the the physical therapist had me do, uh, you know, hamstring exercise. And, and she was like, just stop with the quads. You got, you got plenty of quad meat. You never have to worry about it again. But you have to focus so much more on your hamstrings and also uh, the, the lateral muscles. You know, the, the lateral... Um, uh, abductor muscles, which are the ones on the outside, uh, you have to strengthen those a lot in order to keep everything balanced. So I would say, yeah, hamstrings and and the lateral glutes, not necessarily the the big juicy BBL ones. <laughs> I don't know how much time I have left. My five k is mid March, so we might be, be in fine. for a ride. You'll be fine. You have plenty of time. You can do <laughs> extraordinary things in two weeks. You already have the foundation. I don't worry about you. I'm glad to have you on today here, Kennedy, on the Will Cain Show. Let's start with politics. Let's start with Michigan. So um, Donald Trump won another resounding victory in a state that neither candidate put much time or effort. Uh, Joe Biden won as well. But what everyone's takeaway was, was the percentage, the the number of voters on the Democratic primary that chose non-committed. We saw in Nevada uh, a turnout for none of the above in the primary. When it comes to Biden, the far left is um, unhappy with uh, DC's policy when it comes to Israel. And I just, I wonder, Kennedy, as someone, you know, I think you are a self-described libertarian. I don't think you've ever wanted to be someone that fits into the traditional political spectrum, choose between the false choice of Republican and Democrat. And I just wonder, like, this is sizing up, I think, to be a year where whatever it is, no labels, none of the above, plays a big role in 2024. 
I think it does. I mean, I think ideas certainly still matter and the messenger of those ideas matters. Um, otherwise, you know, if Nikki Haley and Joe Manchin teamed up, they could, if people were just kind of frustrated and wanted none of the above, they would do very well. But I don't think they're enough. I don't think they're what people want. I think people tend to gravitate toward candidates like RFK Jr. because at least he has some answers. At least there appears to be some anti-establishment selflessness there that people are attracted to. Even, you know, it's like, I don't necessarily agree with the guy, but I understand why he's still hanging in there. I also understand why someone like Nikki Haley hasn't made purchase. And it's not just because of Donald Trump. Like, she can run on her own merits, but for a lot of Republicans and for many Republicans, they have become the anti-war party, certainly the anti-endless war party. And if you listen to people like Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and their pleas for billions more for Ukraine, Democrats have become like the pro-war machine party. And I think, you know, that's kind of where Nikki Haley fits in. But we are not being served by a factionalized two-party system. The us-or-them paradigm is completely broken. It has been for many, many election cycles, and we all know that. Even though uh, Meathead uh, Rob from All in the Family, the, the super liberal guy, he gets on Twitter every year and goes, this is the most important election of our lifetime. You can't keep saying that because you're the communist who cried wolf and no one believes in that anymore. But I talked to Chris Novoselic recently. The basis from Nirvana has gotten very, very involved in politics, especially local politics where he lives in Washington state over the last few decades. He is um, a very well-researched, objective, independent voice. And so, you know, and, and he pours over a lot of this stuff. And he's been talking about a couple of interesting things for the last few years that resonate with someone like me because my person never wins. I am a limited government, small L libertarian. I'm not a member of the Libertarian Party. I'm an unaffiliated voter, but none of these politicians, they don't want to make government smaller and less intrusive. They want to do the opposite. So he has looked into both um, proportional representation and ranked choice voting. And I think if you have those two things, um, if you really could change the system, and they're doing that in places like New York City and Maine, and there are other counties and, and states across the country who have tried their version of ranked choice voting, and it empowers voters more so they will show up because you put down your first choice, but then you can also put down your second, third, and fourth choice, however many they allot you. So if your first choice doesn't make it, then your second choice uh, gets your vote. So that means that people who are vying for your vote, they have to appeal in a little bit more of a way that creates a coalition and a, a kinder way because they want you to vote for them. They don't want to ostracize other people like Bob Costas did the day before yesterday. Yeah, but Bob Costas is just the latest in a long entry of people for the past eight years that have maligned people that vote for Trump. By the way, it's Rob Reiner. And... Um, I, did, I was going to say Rob I Schneider, and I'm not, like, I know it's not Deuce Bigelow. I know it's not Deuce Bigelow. So, it's not yes, Deuce Rob Bigelow. Reiner, it's all in the, it, it is all in the family. Uh, you, uh, the, the guitarist for Nirvana, 
Um, super political hunt. By the way, okay, you spent all those years at, at MTV, and you, you've been involved, I would assume, to keep contact with a lot of people in music. You know, I always, we always hear about, like, the politically active leftist in music. I mean, I guess, I don't know if we're going to count Taylor Swift, but we can easily count Green Day. Um, you know, but there are those who, I guess... Would be on the right. First of all, the Ramones, at least some of the Ramones, had yeah. had some very uh, right leaning tendencies. Um, how, t- tell me about that. Like, like is music rock stardom not quite as far as we think on the left? Um, I think individuals aren't, especially when they start making money. And you know, they also look at the places they live, the places they have always loved. And they have totally gone to hell in a handbasket. You know, anyone who has grown up or come of age in Los Angeles, you don't recognize the city anymore. Same with San Francisco. And and these were hotbeds of artistry, you know, n- not just music, but writers and, and painters, visual arts of, of every kind. And art tends to be more emotional. And people who make their living selling their art tend to be more emotional beings with politics the emotional people are very loud and they're very eager to advertise when someone is on the opposite tracks of their groupthink train and they will they will cancel you and i think that's what a lot of people fear is if they are outed for being politically agnostic uh they are painted as being Proud Boys, as as being Hitler Youth, and uh, it's terrifying. Has that happened for you? I mean, you 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 must have had a lot of relationships, and I don't assume they all you know ceased to exist when you were no longer at MTV. But you made a lot of friendships, I'm sure, when you were at MTV. Did, have you been written off by a lot of people? I mean, Kendi, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me just for the simple affiliation with Fox. Yes, and and Fox more than anything has been a dividing line. And I have lost friendships. And it's funny because some of the people who bailed on me in 2016 when Trump was elected are now kind of coming back around. And they're like, oh, you know, I'm I'm watching the news more and more. And, uh, you know, what do you think about this candidate? What do you think about that candidate? And I'm always ready to engage with people, but I'm disappointed that so many people gave in to that emotionalism and people that I thought were my friends outside of our political beliefs, um, they were so blinded by the need to constantly advertise the appropriate political message in order to appease some beast who is never going to be happy. The left is never going to be satisfied. There's nothing you are going to say or do that will ever, ever be politically correct enough. So just live your own life. And for most people, like, look around. What do you see? For a lot of these places, they have sort of crumbled into dystopia. So do you look at that and go, oh, you know what? Super lefties have been in charge for a long time. So this has been their money and their message in action. What are we left with? You're left with San Francisco. So for a lot of people, they're going, well, maybe the the far left really isn't the way we should be voting. And I hope more people are independent. I hope more people are not committed to political parties, but to their self-interests and the ideas that serve their families. Because 
if everyone is looking out for their self-interest, it will actually be a better world because we share a lot of the same self-interests. Let's go back to MTV for a minute. Um, people that are younger are going to have a hard time understanding how central that was, not just to music, but to pop culture in general. And you were right there in the middle of it. And like all of those stars must have come through there to some degree, a little bit like a politician comes through Fox. Like, I want your approval. I want to be your friend. Have, uh, first of all, A, was it like that? And then B, what, uh, which of those relationships have, now, I'm not talking about politics at this point now. I'm just talking about, you know, personal life. Which of those relationships proved to be lasting? Like, who are you still close with? I'm definitely still close with Chris Novoselic. A bunch of people from MTV, Tap the Soren, Bill Bellamy, uh, Kurt Loder, um, you know, some of the people that you didn't see on camera. And, you know, it's really great because some of the, the guys who were PAs, um, and that means that they were, like, driving vjs in a van back and forth between the city and the mtv beach house they are now either tv executives or running production companies so it's really cool to see people stay in the industry for a long time i'm still really close with my mentor andy Schoen. he was the one who hired me when i was an intern at k-rock in los angeles he hired me to be a part-time overnight dj and then he got hired by mtv and he got me an audition to be a vj and then convinced Judy McGrath, who was the president at the time, to hire me. So I'm, I'm still very close with Andy. And still, anytime I have a crossroads in my career or, you know, a, a new project, I always run it by him because he's such a straight shooter. But yes, it was beyond what you can imagine. Like there were people showing up constantly because we were all in the same studio. It doesn't matter, you know, it, Yo! MTV Raps, my show, Alternative Nation, the live dance show, The Grind with Eric Nice, And there were constantly people coming through that studio. And, you know, it's like one of my clearest memories was uh, one of TLC's very first TV performances. And they were practicing in the women's bathroom and they were so cute. And like later that day, LL Cool J and Soul Asylum would all come by. And I remember thinking like, if my eighth grade self, like if I could tell my eighth grade self what's happening right now, she would not believe me. And we had no idea how unique and special it was because you could not foresee things like TikTok and you yeah. know, YouTube and, and things that have completely changed media and really fractured media because at that point, Andy Schoen likes to say it was like opening up your laptop and the only thing the browser would open up to was MTV. There, were, there was literally nothing else. And we did not have social media. We had um, AOL chat rooms starting in 1994. I remember that because I got in trouble going into one of them because I had just gotten back from snowboard camp in uh, Whistler, British Columbia, and saw a bunch of bears on the hill with their cubs. And I saw a chat room, Bears for Bears. And so I was inside like, I just saw a bunch of black bears in British Columbia. And um, bears are um, like a nickname that kind of bigger, hairy gay men give each other. So they were, <laughs> they were 
there. So for you the were wildlife. in that chat room. <laughs> they weren't there for the wildlife. That's correct. Yes, nice, nice introduction, Kenny. What's the biggest rock star story from your time there? Like, I mean, you know what's funny is we always hear the stories from the '70s of wrecking hotel rooms and the the bands from the '60s and the '70s and their rock star behavior. What would have been the biggest rock star story of of I don't know Limp Biscuit coming through MTV? I don't mean specifically Limp Biscuit, but whoever it is, your biggest rock star story. There were a couple of VJs who um, OD'd on cocaine and had to be, one had to be resuscitated and taken to the hospital. The other uh, was shoved in a taxi and, and went to the ER with uh, arrhythmia. My biggest rock star weekend, I think, happened before, the weekend before I moved to New York to start my job at MTV. And I had met Trent Reznor at uh, the Roxy. And Louis Largent, who was the music director at K-Rock at the time, said, I dare you to go up to Trent Reznor and sing Head Like a Hole as Ethel Merman. And so I did. I was like, <laughs> Head Like a Hole! And I sang it to him, and he paused for a second and put his chin in his hands, and I thought he was disappointed. And he said, I've only ever wanted two things in my life. One was to see a stripper dance to my music, which I've seen several times, and the other was to be serenaded with one of my songs by Ethel Merman. And he said, thank you for making that <laughs> dream come true. And so we became friends, platonic friends, and Ted Fields from Marshall Fields, who's a billionaire um, who owned Interscope Records, which was his new record label, wanted to impress him, was like, hey, Trent, why don't you take some friends to my compound uh, just north of Santa Barbara for the weekend. And I have never seen opulent wealth like this in my life. There must have been seven individual guest houses in addition to the giant mansion and the polo field. And all the guys from Nine Inch Nails just got hammered and took golf carts out and were just kicking lights and destroying the place. <laughs> I don't even want to mention what they did to the pool, but uh, that I was like, <laughs> I, and, and with impunity, they weren't worried about a thing. And uh, Ted Fields probably loved telling everyone he knew that Nine Inch Nails went and trashed his two hundred million dollar beach compound. I bet he did love that story. Uh, let's go back for a moment. And interweave here some politics. You know, yesterday I had on, I, I'm going to tie this into what you said about some of your friends and the divisions that started in 2016. And I had a conversation yesterday here on the Will Cain Show with um, the, the chairman of No Labels, uh, Joe Cunningham. And one of the things I said to him, I said two things that I, that I think is worthy of deeper. I said, I don't see where you fit. And I'm, I, with all due respect, I just, I don't see where you fit No Labels. Because Kennedy, like you, probably less obvious. I don't really feel like I actually fit in a clean bipolar system of political A and B choice. But I don't think that makes me unique anymore. I think that the whole political ideological landscape was scrambled probably about eight to 10 years ago. We're just quit fitting neatly into left and right. And whether or not that's on speech issues or mandated vaccination issues or or you know, destroying democracy to save democracy. There's just there's no cohesive. There's no way to make sense of this spectrum from left 
to right. And I, I said to him, you simply positioning yourself as bipartisan and moderate doesn't work in a system that's not linear. You need to be original and address America's original ideas. And that's why when you brought up RFK, I said that to him. I said, would you consider RFK? But I don't think that's who they think of themselves as with no labels. And then what I said, Kennedy, was I want to present a platform to you. And then I went about basically describing the platform of Donald Trump in 2016. And it doesn't fit either on that political linear spectrum. It is part of the scrambling. Like he, by no traditional definition does he represent far right. He only represents far right to the extent that his personality or style is measured over substance. And so um, I just, I just think that, and I don't expect that to mean it reflects your necessarily unique recipe of politics, Kennedy, or someone that might be libertarian. But what we have to at least acknowledge is it doesn't represent a traditional Republican um, platform. It doesn't just simply exist at the far right of a linear spectrum. And until we figure out, and maybe rank choice is the way, that we don't fit on these clean teams with clear ideological issues anymore, I don't think politics fits America. So that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, you know, proportional representation is the other side. And that is based on how big your party is in terms of a percentage of the voting public. So, you know, say it's 43 percent Republican or, or 28 percent Democrat, whatever. That's how many seats you have in your legislature. So you, you would have to have, like, if your Green Party is 4%, 4% of the seats in your legislature go to Green Party candidates. Uh, same thing with Libertarians. And then these, because there are some things that Libertarians agree with AOC and Bernie Sanders on. Very, very few things, because they, by and large, want to make the government bigger. And they want to take more of your money. And they have no problem trampling on your rights because they don't believe human beings are good or smart or capable. But there are a couple things. So you would find those areas and you would work together on single issues, which is really how it should be. But Republicans and Democrats, who oftentimes aren't that far apart on a lot of things, they other and demonize each other because it's a lot easier to do that than to put your head down and actually get something done. And, you know, I, I don't have a huge problem when there's a stalemate in Washington because it means they're not spending too much money. But unfortunately, Republicans are similar to Democrats in that they still love spending money. Like they don't have a problem with it at all. Um, and I think that it's really difficult to lay out in two political parties what the platform is because you end up alienating people. And Everyone has this sort of all or nothing mentality where it's got to be every single thing I want on this list. It has to check every single box or you are dead to me. And, and that's where we've gotten. And you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to be a forward looking country. And, you know, with the far left, they hate this country. We can't even agree that we love this country and we want to make it better. By virtue of saying that, uh, you have added yourself as a conservative demon. And I did not have that on my bingo card when I was in my 20s. 
you know, it's going to sound like advocacy, but I think I'm just accurately describing reality. I think this is another feather in the cap of, of Donald Trump is that he's not what you described, that all or nothing thing. He's an, at his core, a deal maker. Hey, I want to ask you this. Is chivalry dead? My Fox and Friends weekend co-host, Rachel Campos Duffy, just came back from the border. She did some great reporting on the NGOs that are housing illegal immigrants. Original stuff from from Rachel. Uh, but then she posted on Twitter uh, that chivalry was dead. She got on the plane to come back, and she was putting her uh, carry-on luggage, which, by the way, I have no doubt was way too heavy and overpacked. And she's not the tallest person in the world, but she couldn't get it in overhead bin. She said five men watched her try to struggle to put that in the overhead bin. I fly every week, Kennedy. I've been confronted with this, and I'd like to think that I do get up. I do. I don't just like to think it. I do get up and help um, women with that bag, but there's a part of me that's like, hey, if you can't handle your own bag, maybe you've made a mistake in your packing. So, is Rachel's experience mean that chivalry is dead? I don't think it means chivalry is dead. I do think there are a lot of people, a lot of guys who are mansplainers on planes and, you know, they they want to prove a point. And you have a very valid point because I am a minimalist when it comes to packing. I am so good at packing. I can pack for two weeks in a carry-on bag and a backpack that fits under the seat and I'll be fine. Um, I never take more than I can lift. Um, I would never assume that someone should be able to help me lift my stuff. If that were the case, then I would just check the bag and, Mm. you know, pay someone, tip someone in order to help me get the bag from A to B. Never assume that someone is going to help you. We have to adopt a survivalist mentality and only take what you can carry. And I, I think that is critically important. I don't think chivalry is dead. I think that we've kicked the crap out of masculinity. And so a lot of men don't know if they are supposed to hold the door open. I appreciate it. I I very much appreciate those traditional norms. And I always think about like the kind of world that my grandparents lived in where they would get dressed up to travel. And, you know, of course, a, a man would open a door for a woman and stand up when she's seated and, and all of those things. And I hope that the moms and dads out there are raising sons who, who do that because that's the golden rule. Do for others as you would want them to do for you. But I'm like you. Like when someone's struggling with a bag on a plane, sometimes, and this annoys my children, sometimes I wear navy blue when I fly so it looks like I'm a flight attendant. And then um, I try and help them pass out <laughs> the sanitizing wipes. And uh, I've, I've done that. I've taken the basket and given it to people. And the flight attendant's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I believe you. Uh, by the way, speaking of Rachel, by the way, she's height challenged. So not all of this is simply her overpacking. No. Um, but that's uh, and that's, Rachel. And you, you, those, are, those are immutable characteristics that you yeah. have no power over. That's correct. Rachel and Pete and I are legit friends. We will do a show, for example, in South Carolina, and we'll go to the bar on Saturday afternoon between Saturday and Sunday. Absolutely. You as well have a group of people at Fox. And, and, and you, you as well have a group of people at Fox that you're, you're buddies with. And I, I don't think I'm, you, it's on social media, so I'm not talking outside of school here. You're buddies with like Cat and Cat Temp and Guy Benson. 
Um, I think maybe Dagan McDowell. What is your crew you run with over there at Fox? Yeah, so um, for my 50th birthday, I rented a villa in Greece, and Guy and his husband were there. Dagan was there. Uh, Kat, Emily Campagno, um, Jessica Tarlov is one of my bros. Jimmy Fela, obviously. Uh, Jimmy and I have gotten to a lot of trouble in our respective backyards, and I think there are people in uh, my hometown in Pacific Palisades, California, <laughs> who are probably not looking forward to this 4th of July because we are so loud. But yeah, like Dagan is the kind of person, she'll walk in and be like, put me to work, what do you want me to do? I'm like, can you shuck an oyster? She's like, watch this. Um, she, she also <laughs> would help you drain the body in the bathtub until you could get a U-Haul. Oh, that's, I've that's never a good friend to have. I've never place where I'm so blessed with the friendships that I have. And it's not like that everywhere. It really, that is something that is so unique to Fox and they're really good at alchemy. They're really good at hiring people. You know, it's like Alexis McAdams and Emily Campagno and I went to Mexico last year on vacation and we had the best time. We also went to Oktoberfest in Munich the October before. So it's not like that everywhere. And I've always said the good ones have to stick together. So if you have bros at work, like take care of them, look out for them, you know, talk them up to the boss, uh, make sure that no matter what happens, you have their back and they will have yours. And one time I was at a Jean-Paul Gaultier fashion show, Madonna and I were both in the show and I went up and talked to her and we were talking about Sandra Bernhardt had made some really cruel comments about me in the press and I knew that they had been friends at one point and she said something to me that resonated with me to this day. There is plenty of room for everyone's talent, especially women. We don't have to tear each other down. And hmm. there is that mentality at Fox. There's plenty of room for everyone's talent. You are not in a competition. You are in a competition with yourself. So that competition is to do better than you did the day before, find your voice and do something extraordinary with it. You're articulating something that, um, that well, first of all, I don't know that everybody watching can appreciate what you're saying in that. So you're setting that against a backdrop that this business is actually full of people who see success as a zero sum game. And that if somebody else has a seat, you don't have a seat. And to some extent, they are right. There is a, a, an element of reality there that there's only so many seats in prime time. There's only so many seats on this particular show. And we are in some level of competition to it. But I do think there's a divide behind the scenes, behind the people that's internalize that as part of their personality a little bit. And, um, and I actually think it's a lot of it is insecurity, but they, they, that's how they operate. And then there are others who are, I think, and I, and I can speak for the show I'm involved with as well, who see this as you're in a competition with yourself. Just do, do your best every day. Because what I've realized as well is, um, look, I've been doing this for a long time. I can angst and I could jockey and I could try. I have no control. I have no control about what executives make decisions behind the scenes. Like, it's going to be what it's going to be. Or if I do have control, I haven't figured out how to exert it yet. So just, it's not a healthy way to live. But I was talking to my son last night, Kennedy, and I was um, talking about lunch. I didn't realize that they have free lunch. I thought they had to sit with their quote-unquote advisory group. But he's like, no, we can sit wherever we want. I'm like, okay. I'm like, who do you sit with? And um, like, I said, is it like a 1980s movie? Like, a, you know, the cool kids over there at one table and the, you know, the stoners at the other table, um, uh -huh. like in, you know, Can't Buy Me Love. And, uh, and 
he, they didn't even know what I was talking about. They're like, what's a stoner? And, um, I, I so here's, here's what I, the motorhead. Yeah, exactly. The motorheads, they were out in the parking lot. Um, the 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 question is what is your crew at Fox Kennedy like I mean who are, I mean part of the, you want to say you're the punk rock kids but then you also just dropped some John Paul Gaultier on me so I don't know what your crew is at Fox which table are you at in the cafeteria that's interesting I mean I'm really no different than I was in high school and um, I was not in the popular group but I was pretty much friends with everyone and you know when I was running for office my junior year. Um, we had a smoking section at my high school, which is a really funny thought in this day and age that, you know, it's like very few people are 18 when they graduate from high school. So everyone was smoking illegally. They had a smoking section at high school. So I used to go out to the smoking section and pass out cigarettes and I would write my name in Sharpie on the <laughs> filter and tell people, you know, hey, when it comes time to vote, I would really appreciate your vote. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> I didn't judge. I had a great time. I had crushes on unavailable juniors and seniors who were never going to give me the time of day. And, you know, they still probably wouldn't. Um, but I, and it's, you know, same thing here. Like, I just, I high five everybody. But if someone is toxic and they are one of those insecure people, I am not going to waste any of my time and energy on that. It's life is short. You know, it's like my energy goes to my kids first and foremost, my sexy teenage boyfriend, and I pour my heart and my creativity. What did you just say? My sexy teenage boyfriend. Follow-up question. Please explain. Sexy teenage boyfriend? Not really a teenager, but he's younger than I am. So, and he's very sexy. How much? How much? He's, he's a 10, I'd say. No, how, I, how much younger? How much? Seven. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, that's that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you know, the ma- I don't know what the female rule is. The male rule is half plus seven. You know, that's the rough working back of the envelope calculation. Half plus seven is your range. My mom, after my dad passed, married a man fifteen years her younger. Seven, you're safe. I don't know what the female back of the envelope math is. I don't want to have to explain any cultural references to anybody ever. They don't deserve it. Um, so that's where I draw the line. But it's and I, I dated some younger dudes, and they're, um, it's, it's not worth the effort. There are plenty of younger than- men in their 40s and 50s who are attractive and in good shape. I thank God for narcissism. All right, last question. We'll end on a serious note. So there was a big contingent in Michigan that was uncommitted. And this is the suspicion is it's the far left over Israel. And the question is, will they vote for Donald Trump? Will they find some other way to vote? Will they stay home? And will that swing an election? I don't know that it will swing the election. I think it's still going to be pretty tight. I think there are a lot of people who are going to stay home. I don't think Joe Biden is a motivating transformational force the way Donald Trump is. Donald Trump, his his most ardent supporters, they're pissed, they're paying attention, and they have been activated. So they certainly will go out and vote. I still think they're going to swap out Joe Biden. There is no way 
he is able to follow through with this campaign and the election. And I think it's cruel what they're doing to him. I totally agree. Hey, good luck with that sexy teenage boyfriend. I look forward to hearing more. Yeah. Thanks for being on the Will Kane Show. <laughs> Thanks, Kennedy. Check her out on Kennedy Saves the World, part of Fox News Podcasts, right here. She's got a great show. I've been on it. I've been on her Happy Hour Friday, and we talk about a lot of great things outside the world of news and politics. Check out Kennedy. Coming up, your soft skills, more important than your hard skills. So says the New York Post. So says Gary Vaynerchuk, next on The Will Cain Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Breaking news. According to the Associated Press, Mitch McConnell will step down as the Senate Republican leader in November. One of the most powerful men in America says he will no longer sit in the post that he's held for decades come November. Part of you wants to think that is a reflection of his estimation of the state of the presidential race. I actually think that Mitch McConnell would be happy to continue working with Joe Biden, and I'm doubtful that he would want to continue or fight with Donald Trump. But I think as much as anything, it's a reflection of Mitch McConnell's age. He, like Joe Biden, has simply passed his expiration date. But the policies and the strategies that Mitch McConnell has pushed forward will probably most likely be taken up in a very similar vein by South Dakota Senator John Thune. It's the Will Cain Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel. Always on demand, Will Cain Show on YouTube and on Apple or Spotify. Your hard skills, less important for your career than your soft skills. In a report on the New York Post, um, it's written, your job performance is a combination of your hard skills, your technical knowledge and hands-on work product, and your intangible soft skills, which are taking the American workplace by storm. Soft skills are non-technical skills that relate to how you work. The New York Post goes on. These skills include how you interact with colleagues, how you solve problems, how you manage your work, according to The Balance, a personal finance website. These include interpersonal skills, communication skills, listening skills, time management, problem solving, leadership, and empathy. Employers are reportedly looking for soft skills. Gary Vaynerchuk, social media influencer, owns a sports agency, business um, in helping businesses with social media, who I had the privilege of interviewing more than a decade ago, took to his Instagram where he had this to say about this article. Hard skills, meaning like information and like knowing what's in a textbook, are continuously getting commoditized. It's what things like AI and just like, I don't know, unlimited students that go to all the same universities do. Soft skills are in great demand because it's like real life. It's like captain of the team. It's it's like leaders. It's I just had dinner with a Fortune 50 CEO. What was very clear about him is he got there on soft skills. This is why I'm making this video, inspired by the dinner I just had and seeing this headline. It's not complicated out here. Like 
emotional intelligence, intuition, having a gut for things, caring about people, knowing that the caring will lead to build, being building a bigger business. That video is courtesy of, and you can check him out on his Instagram at Gary V. I think Vanderchuk is absolutely correct with a caveat. What he's correct about and what I think he finds and offers us insight on is the commoditization of hard skills, hard skills, technical skills, actual work product. And he points out two interesting ways that that's becoming commoditized. One, a subject which we've all been discussing, artificial intelligence. Lawyers turning to AI to churn out briefs and memos. College students writing papers on AI. Your work product becoming commoditized by artificial intelligence. But also, as Gary points out, college, which is like a factory of churning out people with similar thought process, similar degrees, and similar skills out into the world. You are literally one then of hundreds of thousands. So what can separate you? Your soft skills, which one could argue are on the decline, are not only not being commoditized and something that's insulated from artificial intelligence, but something that is deteriorating within society. I said he's right in part. Here's the caveat. I think this can also be a, I think this can also be a, uh, a escape hatch for the lazy. I, I think your hard skills are still important. I think you have to have good work product. I think you need technical know-how. And quite honestly, if you're going through the world thinking, I'm just going to get by on soft skills, you're also basically telling yourself that you're going to get by on bull****. And that's not going to cut it. And I think there's a lot of young people that might think that's the, might, might end up with that being the lesson. I can just get by on my BS. What I think is that you need to have hard skills adaptable over time, only adaptable through soft skills. I had dinner as well with a guy last week who has a very successful construction company, and he brought along a younger employee of his company because what he said is like, the most valuable part of my business is my relationships. The necessary but not sufficient part of your business is that you have to do good work. You have to do good work. That's your hard skill. But in order to generate that work, you have to have relationships. This is something that I've always resisted in life, the idea of networking. It always felt unearned. Like If you just do good work, it should rise to the top and should serve as its own marketing. But this just isn't the way it is. It's just not reality. I mean, it's the same thing with this show. I don't love leaning into social media. I want to produce a good show and have unique conversations that over time, I think, will rise up and break through. But that's just not the way the world is. You have to market. And in the short term, a lot of people break through because of good marketing and actually not good work product. I'd like to think that's short-lived. I'd like to think that's a Roman candle. What goes up quick has to come down quick. You have to have the hard skills underneath. But you can't deny that networking and relationships and soft skills are part of this equation. As soon as this show ends today, I'm heading off to my kid's school to have parent-teacher conferences. And one of the things that is necessary for us to talk about that I am concerned about when it comes to education is, among many things when I'm concerned about education, is when you excel, where do they push you? In the vast majority of American education, they push you into advanced placement courses. I don't like advanced placement. Oh, yeah, you get college credit. But advanced placement teaches you what to think, how to pass a test, how to get a four. I, I, I want how to think, not what to think. 
I don't want learning how to pass a test. I want the skills of thinking that are adaptable over time because the test of life is not constant. It will change. And that's where it comes in that I think soft skills are more important than hard skills. The soft skills that I think are important are the ones that are pointed out by the New York Post and Gary Vee. Yeah, EQ, emotional intelligence, networking, the ability to maintain and create relationships. But others, like resilience, first, before resilience, risk tolerance, fail, and fail again. You only learn through failure. You don't learn through success. But in order to learn from failure, once you're brave enough to actually risk it, is how to come back from failure. Resilience. How do you teach that soft skill? Judgment. Judgment's one of the hardest things to develop. It's based upon wisdom. I once had a meeting at ESPN when every talent was leaning into political messaging when it wasn't their job at sports. And there was a meeting of like, I don't know, 20 different talent with the president of ESPN. The question was, how can we develop a policy that you guys could all abide by where we can draw a line on when something is political? In the end, there was no policy that could be developed. And it was my one contribution to the meeting. And I think it was echoed, you won't mind, by Scott Van Pelt. You're asking how you can give each of us judgment Judgment, good judgment, wisdom is a far and short supply. Soft skill, strategic thinking, problem solving, looking for holes in the game, seeing the system and seeing where the system is failing, but being an optimist, not just being a pessimist that points out the negativities in the system, but seeing what opportunities those failures in the system present, which requires optimism and vision in those Soft skills. And then finally, initiative. Get off the mat. Do something about it. Take that risk. Come back from failure. Don't just see it. Don't just analyze it. Don't just write a business plan. Do it. And then do it again and do it again. If there's anything that I could teach my kids or, you know, that I would like to incorporate into my life, or if I was a young person, I was thinking about how to educate myself. Don't use it as an escape hatch to avoid actual technical knowledge and hard work product. Don't use it as a escape hatch on hard skills. But understand that these, this is the lasting skills that will help you adapt when life is a constantly different test. Soft skills. Controversial moment here on The Will Cain Show. On the show text thread. Controversial post by ESPN College Football. Who are the top quarterbacks of college football in the BCS era, post-BCS era? Who are the top college football quarterbacks since the year 2000? I, at the risk of setting the show on fire, may surprise you. Next on The Will Cain Show. Who are the top College quarterbacks since the year 2000. It's the Will Cain Show, streaming live at foxnews.com, Fox News YouTube channel, Fox News Facebook. Who are the top college quarterbacks since the year 2000? That was asked by ESPN and ESPN's College Football. They put out a list that included men like Robert Griffin III at number 10 and Marcus Mariota at number 9, Lamar Jackson at 8, Kyler Murray at 7, and Baker Mayfield at 1. It set their social media feed on fire. It also set the text thread here for the Will Cain show on fire. A debate 
with names being thrown around, like Tebow and Vince Young and Jameis Winston. Who should be number one? Who should be a top five? Better yet, I'm going to give you my top eight college football quarterbacks since the year 2000. With apologies to Matt Leiner, who put together an incredible career at USC. The list starts at eight with Johnny Manziel, Johnny Football. Sometimes it's not about stats, although Manziel had the stats. For two seasons, he put up incredible numbers running and throwing, averaging about 45 touchdowns a year between the ground and the air. And he was simply Johnny Football. He was exciting. He was the best college quarterback in the world at that moment, and he was every stereotype we wanted from a quarterback in college football. At number seven, it is Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield's not number one, he is number seven, but let's be real about who Baker Mayfield was. He put up season after season, first at Tech and then at Oklahoma, where he was an absolute stud. He was a stud through the air, but he had the intangible. Baker had that 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 anger inside of him that wanted to prove every doubter wrong. I loved Baker Mayfield, even as I hated OU. At number six, let the fireworks start. Quarterback from Florida State, Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston had maybe the second best single season of a quarterback in college football. He led the Knowles to a national championship. He led the Knowles, he led himself to a Heisman campaign. Jameis was the number one offense in college football, but he is uh, clearly below the rest of this list that starts with number five. Jameis is number six. I miscounted. It's eight, seven, six, Jameis. The rest of this list, the tier one of college football starts at number five. The best single season by a pure passer, LSU's Joe Burrow. He threw for 65 touchdowns in Burrow was no slouch on the ground. He didn't have a great defense. He did have incredible weapons at wide receiver. That single season, at least in the terms of a traditional quarterback that you knew would go on to be a great quarterback in the NFL, that single season as a passer may be the best in the history of college football. At number four, he was described as Superman. It's Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson put together two incredible seasons. He averaged over 50 touchdowns. He was on the ground. He was in the air. Deshaun Watson was a video game. He was also, though, in a different era of more explosive offenses that opened up sometime after 2010. And the men that populate the top three did something similar when college football was more constrained. At number three, is the man that I thought would be number one. He will always be number one in my heart. If there's one quarterback I want for one play, if there's one quarterback I want for one game, it is Vince Young of the Texas Longhorns. Vince, 38 touchdowns, a threat on the air, uh, in the air, a threat on the ground, fourth and seven, supreme confidence that Texas will convert. Vince is the single most unstoppable player that I have seen in my lifetime. I am a homer. I am a fan. And I have never felt more confident, never felt a moment of insecurity with Vince as the quarterback of the Texas Longhorns. But he comes in at number three. Because at number two is the man that quite simply did what Vince did at just bigger numbers. It's Cam Newton. Cam has a Heisman. 
Cam has a national championship. Cam averaged 50 touchdowns. Cam was more even effective on the ground than Vince, at least statistically running for over 1,400 yards. Cam was an absolute stud at Auburn, and he was not surrounded by NFL talent. Cam comes in at number two. But it is undeniable that the greatest quarterback, statistically and with accomplishment and through the intangibles, in college football since 2000, at number one, it's Tim Tebow. Tebow did it season after season. Three seasons of this for Tim Tebow. Two national championships. The first as a freshman when he shared the duties with Chris Leak. Later, when he was the undoubted leader of a team of absolute egos, big personalities, and in some cases, problems. They were brought together by a leader who, who prioritized faith. But that's not just the intangibles. Tebow averaged over 40 touchdowns. He had about 1,000 yards rushing. He had well over 3,000 yards passing. He did it almost perfectly in the air, on the ground, in the locker room, and in the awards closet for Florida. I thought my heart would lead me and my experience towards Vince Young. But quite honestly, to be objective, you have to say the best quarterback since 2000 is Tim Tebow. That's my list. One, Tebow. Two, Cam. Three, Vince. Four, Deshaun Watson. Five, Burrow. Six, Jameis. Seven, Baker. Eight, Johnny Football. That's the best quarterbacks in college football since the year 2000. Let me know what you think. Will Kane Show at Fox.com. Will Kane on X or see Will Kane on Instagram. That's going to do it for today right here on the Will Kane Show. Until next time, I'll see you then. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast and Amazon Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.